I do want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Romans chapter 6. Before we begin our look at Romans 6, I want to remind you of two very important things. The first reminder I want to give you is this. One of the greatest tasks for the preacher, at least those who preach by way of consecutive verse-by-verse exposition of the Bible, is to continually understand the flow of the writer's argument throughout the whole of an individual book of Scripture. And nowhere is this more important than with the tight, logically consistent arguments given by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And secondly, by way of reminder, I also want you to remember that when the original autographs of Scripture were penned, there were no inspired chapter or verse divisions. These were added later, much later in fact, mainly for the ease of referencing or cross-referencing a certain section of the Bible. And these have been somewhat helpful in allowing you and me to look up various sections of Scripture, being able by these chapter and verse divisions to quickly locate paragraphs of thought. The difficulty sometimes with these chapter and verse divisions, however, is that they are somewhat arbitrary and in some cases actually work against the critical understanding of thematic connections between paragraphs. We simply can't be held hostage to these sometimes arbitrary or even improper divisions within our Bibles. And a case in point is the division here between Romans 5 and 6. There really shouldn't be a chapter division there because the tight, logical argument which Paul is engaged in continues right on through from chapter 5 into chapter 6. In other words, you can't really understand Paul's posed question in Romans 6.1 if you don't connect it together with what he's just said in Romans 5, specifically verses 20 and 21. They do truly hang together. And if you and I want to be diligent students of the Bible, uh, to say nothing of my responsibility as a biblical expositor, we're going to need to rightly understand what Paul intends to teach us with these words in Romans 6, especially verses 1 to 14. And we must therefore understand the connection with what he has just said prior to chapter 6. And what he's just taught us in chapter 5 is absolutely crucial. If you remember, Paul has just given us four great contrasts between mankind's death in Adam as over against all of those who are true believers in Christ and the new realm in which they live. And he's spoken of the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. He's contrasted Adam's death as over against Christ's life. He's contrasted our condemnation in Adam versus the believer's justification in Christ. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul has contrasted the Jews' view of their day, of their hope in obedience to Moses' law and how that will save them from sin versus the grace of Christ 
which Paul is presenting, which is the only true hope, of course, of our deliverance from sin's curse. But it is right here that I want you to understand the second caution that I gave you in our introduction. You simply cannot understand the Pauline answer of Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and following, unless you first understand his statements in Romans 5, 20 and 21. There is a crucial connection between those two. And you can really pick this up as you look at Romans 6, 1, which provides for us a sort of introductory question, a question that he wants to ask us. In what follows. Now, we don't know with certainty whether he's framed his question of Romans 6 1 from actual dialogue with those who are vigorously objecting to where Paul is leading them, or whether Paul is simply anticipating an objection and so he poses his own question. We don't know for sure. But we know this it's a question that we believe that comes immediately preceding his statements of Romans 5 20 and 21. And that's where he talks about Moses' law and how the Jews believed that if they were obedient to Moses' law, that God would ultimately accept them into his kingdom. And Paul says, not so. Notice the flow of his thought, verse 20 of chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, that is, the trespass of Adam. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he's saying the law came in to increase Adam's trespass, to show sinners how really sinful they are. And where this sin increased, praise God, however, His grace, God's grace, abounded all the more, so that for the very purpose, as sin reigned in death, that is, through Adam, grace might also reign through righteousness in Christ, leading, of course, to eternal life. Paul stamps his negative answer to these Jews. He wants to oppose them for what they're hoping in. They'd hoped to be delivered from the bondage of their sin by keeping the Mosaic law. But instead, Paul says, you're further condemned by God because with the coming of the law, it only brings an increase in sinfulness. It doesn't bring you hope. It brings you condemnation. It doesn't release you from sin's curse. It actually adds to it. It further condemns. It doesn't justify the sinner. It exacerbates the sinfulness of mankind, rather than causing them to place their belief that they could be acquitted by it. It only serves to increase Adam's trespass, Paul says, and not provide a remedy for it. He says here in Romans 5, that's true, but, and we're thankful for this apostolic however, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. How did it abound? With the coming of Christ. And if it's true, he says, that sin reigned in death, and it does, grace might reign in life through Christ our Lord and righteousness which leads to that eternal life. You know what he's telling the Jews? And he's telling, of course, the Gentiles also. If you hope in anything else 
other than the grace of God in Christ, you'll be condemned. Whether you're a Jew relying upon the Mosaic law or whether you're a Gentile relying on whatever. And as I mentioned last time, it could be you relying on your church attendance, relying on your giving of money, relying on your service and ministry, or relying on good works, relying on anything else other than the grace of Christ. Because only the grace of Christ leads to righteousness, and only that righteousness leads to eternal life through Christ our Lord. But now, just as soon as we read those words off the page in verses 20 and 21, as soon as we hear these words from Paul, we're confronted with something else because he either anticipates or has been confronted himself with an objection. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Look at it with me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, it would go something like this. Well, Paul, if God's superabounding grace is so wonderful, if it's our only hope, and if sin increases, grace much more increases through Christ, then we'll take Christ and we'll continue in sin that God's grace in Christ will abound, superabound, all the more. And if God's superabounding grace is so wonderful, then by logical extension, we should continue in our sin that God's grace would abound more and more. And that's precisely the question that he poses here in verse 1. And either in Paul's mind or those to whom he was attempting to minister, the idea of increasing sin, being, uh, bringing greater grace, is being contemplated. If God's grace is so magnanimous, if His mercy is so plentiful, if His love is so boundless, then we ought to logically deduce then that more sinning brings God greater glory when He sovereignly dispenses more grace to cover our increased sinfulness. Sounds logical. Sounds good. Sounds plausible. But notice Paul's response. Look at verse 2 of Romans 6. What's his answer? By no means. Exclamation point. And as I've said to you a couple of different times already in our study of the book of Romans, this is the strongest negative response in Koine Greek which Paul could give. Me genoita. Absolutely not. No way. That cannot happen. May it never be. It's inconceivable in Paul's mind that a person who could be set free from the law of sin and death, who could trust only in Christ, who could see only God's grace being dispensed for the forgiveness of their sins, that they could continue in it. It's inconceivable to him. doesn't compute. Absolutely not. And then notice what he does. After giving this very negative initial answer to the question that he himself poses, he gives us the facts as to why this absolutely could not be the case. And the facts that he gives us after the question of verse 1 take up the next nine verses of the chapter. 
And that's what's going to occupy us a little bit today and a little bit more next time. You see, what Paul is now doing by transitioning from chapters 5 through 6, and forget the chapter division in your Bible, what he's doing is he's moving from his teaching on justification, that being our righteousness, our declaration of righteousness by God, to the ethical and the moral implications of that declaration. Now someone's going to say, well, that's probably why they put the verse chapter division there. Yes, that may be true, but don't separate the thoughts. That's the problem. That's the issue. Don't separate these thoughts here. You can't separate the idea that God has declared us righteous in Christ without seeing the moral and the ethical implications of that declaration. And that's what so many have done. And apparently in Paul's own day, that's what people were doing. They weren't seeing this essential connection. Yes, they have to be separated, but they cannot be ultimately severed. No way. And he moves us along in our understanding of his teaching from justification to the concept of our sanctification, which is a big theological term that simply means our necessary holiness. And we must understand this, beloved, these two aspects of our salvation in Christ and how they fit together. And this is clearly what Paul is endeavoring to teach us in these chapters. I've told you before that the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformers notably taught us that Scripture declares that justification is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. You see the difference? Justification is by faith alone. But once someone has, by faith alone, secured a righteousness by the declaratory act of God, that person doesn't stay the way they are. God begins immediately to change them. He begins immediately to produce in them by His power, through His Spirit, change in their life. They become holy. They are on the way to their Full and complete sanctification. It begins immediately after their justification. In other words, there can be no works mixed within our justification by God. He does not tell us, tell the world something about us without immediately beginning by His Spirit to work in us. In justification, He tells us something about us. In sanctification, He begins to do a work in us. And that's a huge distinction, but it cannot be separated. What God does in communicating both about who we are now in Christ and in what He expects of us is really two things. I'm going to give you a little bit of, a, of an exegetical lesson today. Two things. There is the indicative and the imperative. And that is very, very important. It's a solid Pauline theme that runs throughout all of his theology, the indicative and the imperative. You say, what in the world are those? Well, I'll tell you. The indicative statements in Paul's theological mind tell us what the essential facts are about us, both in our justification and in our sanctification. When we say something about someone, for instance, we might say it like this, well, that behavior of theirs is indicative of the way they are. In other words, it's that which characterizes them. It's indicative of them. We're merely stating the facts about them. 
And that's what Paul is doing, at least in part, here for us in Romans 6. He's telling us the facts. He's telling us what characterizes us as Christians. But in addition to that, he's also teaching us the imperative. And he does it in the Greek language by the imperative mood. He tells us that he is commanding us also to do something about ourselves. In other words, that's an action idea. An indicative mood tells us the facts about us. The imperative mood tells us what we are to do about the facts that are given about us. That's the way it goes. We're to do these actions commanded for us by God imperatively because it is based indicatively on what is true about us. And if you don't understand the cruciality, the criticality and essentiality of these things, you're going to misunderstand one of the most important aspects of Pauline theology, if not in the whole of the New Testament, if not in the whole of the Bible itself. There are certain things that God tells us about who we are in Christ. And there are also certain things that God tells us about what we must do based upon who we are in Christ. One provides the grounding of who we are and the other provides the imperatives for what we should do about who we are. That's it. That's important. And so many people have tragically misunderstood this and they've taken some of these indicative statements and they've not understood their moral and ethical implications when they come to those imperatives and some have taken these imperatives and they've completely severed them from their indicative reality or grounding and that's unfortunate and i want you to see four of these indicatives given to us in verses two through ten four indicative statements four statements of fact four absolute characterizations which paul gives to answer the question shall we sin that god's grace may abound he's going to answer that dilemma he's posted in verse one and now he's going to give us four facts as answers to that dilemma. In the first verses of the chapter then, up to and including verse 10, Paul is not giving us any commands to obey. He's not giving us any commands here. He's telling us who we are. And then when he comes to verse 11 through verse 14, he's going to give us some commands about the implications of what we're supposed to do based upon what is true indicatively of us. He's essentially saying since we're now a part of a new realm of life, since we're now part of a new age, the age of Christ, under the headship of Christ, under the lordship of Christ, we'll then be, as commands are obeyed, radically different than who we were in Adam under his headship. Let's begin then with the first indicative fact. Number one, and for this morning, those dead to sin's power cannot now be characterized by its lifestyle. That's number one. That's the first of these four facts. Number one, those dead to sin's power cannot now be characterized by its lifestyle. Notice what he says in verse 2. In answer to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says, for he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And beloved, this is the most simple and straightforward fact 
that Paul is going to give us among the four. It is very simple. It is very straightforward. We are told in clear, matter-of-fact terms, if you are dead to sin's power, sin's control, how can a Christian, one who belongs to Jesus Christ and who is now living under His headship and submission, how can a Christian live like they used to under Adam? He's saying it can't be. It's incongruous. It does not fit. You cannot say that a person has switched from one realm, the realm of Adam, the the dominion of sin, with the consequences of death, live the same anymore. You can't. Christ is your new Lord. Christ is your new head. You can't do it. He's not only justified you, but He's also immediately upon the heels of that justification going to begin a new work in you until that work is completed until the day Jesus Christ returns. He's not going to let you continue to live in the sin that characterized you in your former life. If you go all the way back to verse 12 of chapter 5, as we studied it in massive detail, Adam is said to have plunged the whole human race into sin and all we who are therefore in Adam are then characterized and constituted as sinners. As I said to you last time, we sin because we are sinners. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because it is a constitutional part of us. But notice a According to verse 19 of chapter 5, for instance, while it is true that Adam's disobedience made us all sinners, so by Jesus Christ's one act of redemption on the cross, believers, all true believers in Him, are brought to the place of being declared by God as righteous. And we can now then be transformed Because we've been issued, we've been transferred to a completely different realm of life and existence. In fact, so radical is this change that God could say about us, you have moved from death to life. You you can't get more radical than that. From death to life, yes, from death to life. Whereas once you were dead, now you have been made alive. But I ask you the question, because so many have asked the question about this particular verse, Romans 6.2. What is the sense that we are dead to sin? What does that mean? What does Paul actually mean when he says that genuine believers are dead to sin? I don't know about you, but I continue to see sin in my life, even as a believer, don't you? I see sin there. What's he driving toward here? Well, as I've alluded to, Paul, I think, when he speaks of this deadness, is really referring to a deadness with regard to sin's control or sin's power. That's really the the right way I think you have to understand this. this. This sin control, this sin power has what has been broken in a Christian's life. He's no longer mesmerized by sin's control. It no longer hovers over him, indeed completely and powerfully controlling his thoughts within him as it once did. 
It's been broken. Sin's power has been broken. And just like our first outline point suggests, those dead to sin's power simply cannot, by definition, be any longer characterized by sin's sinful lifestyle, if we can put it that way. The Bible often personifies sin as though it were a person. And this person called sin has its control over you when you are dead in Adam. Nothing you can do. There's no spiritual stimulus that can make you alive except the Spirit of God bring you to life from death. And sin's control and sin's power characterizes you from the womb. It characterizes me from the womb. And we give new levels of that sinful expression as we continue on in our life. And only the power of God can break that. Only the Spirit of God regenerating us, making us new, creating in us new life, can sin's power be broken. And this is why I told you in the introduction that by definition, by indicative statement, a Christian, a person who genuinely believes in Christ, who is legitimately delivered from their sin, they can't live in it. They can't be characterized by that anymore. It's undeniably and unarguably a fact. And Paul is not going to take that for granted. Somebody else may take that for granted, but Paul's not going to take it for granted. He's not going to set up a little syllogism that says, believers are in Christ, believers continue to sin, Therefore, believers will be characterized by their sinfulness. Not so. He will not agree with that. He will not accept their argument. If there were Judaizers, and some of them might be here, if there were others who would be saying, look, if God's dispensing His grace, if He's giving me His grace more and more and more, if my sin increases, then maybe the grace is going to abound all the more. That's what you say here, Paul. And he says, do you mean to tell me that you think if you continue in your sin that God's grace may abound, it will increase? If you continue to live in a characteristic state of sinfulness, by no means. Absolutely not. This is Paul's answer to anyone out there. Whether it's a Jewish person or a Gentile that would accuse him of being what we might say, and for years it has been defined that way, a libertine. What is a libertine? Someone who thought or someone who thinks that God delights in dispensing His grace in ever-increasing ways to those who were increasingly sinning. That's a libertine. That's somebody who's taking liberty with God. Who's taking liberty with Christ who says, I thank you, Christ, for your salvation of me, and I'll continue sinning because if, in fact, you dispense your grace through the work of Christ on the cross, and if you continue in my sanctification to dispense grace to me, then I'll continue in sin. I'll just live it up. I'll just do what I want. Christ will give me His grace. He'll dispense it for me. That's libertinism, and Paul rejects that here. He rejects it out of hand. He rejects it immediately. And I think there's another thing here. Paul and his teaching here could also, by implication, repudiate anyone who thought of himself as an antinomian. You say, that's a big word. What is that? 
somebody, an antinomian, who said there was no longer any relevance whatsoever of the commands of God for the Christian life. And that, by implication, must be here too. Because if someone says, I'm going to go ahead and continue sinning because God's going to continue to dispense His grace to me, what are you going to think about the commands of God? What are you going to think about when God says, don't do that? Don't be characterized that way. Don't live that way. Don't live in your sin any longer. Don't be characterized by a lifestyle of sin. Someone's going to come along and say, well, that doesn't matter. That's not relevant to me. God's going to dispense His grace even if I don't follow the commands of God. No, Paul says, no, not at all. By no means can a Christian be a libertine or an antinomian or both. He can't simply sin up a storm just to receive added grace from God. That's the libertine. Neither can he ignore the obvious imperatives of God which demand that he live obediently unto Christ. <clears throat> can't happen. I ask you, what about your life? What are you characterized by? Are you a libertine? Do you have an attitude that says that since I believe I'm a Christian, I can now do what I want because I know God will be gracious to me? Watch out. If that's your attitude, you're desperately needing to ask yourself a penetrating question. Am I truly dead to sin's powerful control? Because that's what a person who is characterized like that says. Oh, God will forgive. God will dispense His great grace. <clears throat> God will give me what I need to continue on in my lifestyle because it's what I want. And my friends, if you do a spiritual inventory of your life, would you say that Christ has control of your life or would you say sin has control of your life? Which is it? You say it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Some days I think one thing and some days I think another. Well, let me ask you then. Who do you love the most? Your sin or Christ? Who do you obey the most? Christ or sin? Well, you say, sometimes I obey sin and sometimes I obey Christ. Well, then let me ask you this. Whom do you obey predominantly? What is the characteristic nature of your life? Do you obey Christ as the habit of your life? As the pattern of your life? Or do you obey, obey sin as the pattern or the habit of your life? That will tell you. Who, who is the characterizing Lord of your life? Christ or sin? It is one or the other, but it isn't both. You're either predominantly characterized by the love of Christ <clears throat> and the forgiveness He granted at Calvary, or you're controlled by sin's power. It isn't both. It's one or the other. You have to make a choice. Which is it? If you've been delivered from sin, you're saying no to sin most of the time, and you're saying yes to your Lord Christ. You're not living in sin, and that's Paul's point here in verse 2. Or maybe you're one of those ones that has an antinomian lifestyle. Do you presume, and a serious presumption it is, that since you've professed that Christ is your Lord, He really doesn't care about your obedience to His revealed will? That's not true. 
He does care. And He cares deeply. He put His Son on the cross to show you how much He cares. Do you presume that the various imperatives of the New Testament aren't somehow applicable to you? That when you come to living obediently the Christian life, to say yes to the positive commands and no to the negative commands in A, not applicable, doesn't compute, not for me, doesn't apply. Well, look at verse 12 of Romans 6. Look at verse 12 and verse 13. Don't charge Paul with being a libertine or an antinomian. Listen to what he says. Romans 6, 12 and 13. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Now there's an imperative. It's based on an indicative. If a person has truly died to sin... Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. In other words, live up to who you are. Live up to what you profess. Live out the state of your being. Do not present your members. What are members? It's everything about you, including your mind. Do not present your members. Remember, he's personifying the idea of sin as a person, and now he's presenting your mind, including that which you do with your bodies, as personified by members of the body. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Don't do it. Don't say to God and don't say to people around you, maybe even your spouse, possibly your children, maybe those whom you work with or go to school with or anyone around you in your sphere of influence, I love Jesus Christ, I profess to be a Christian, but by your lifestyle you deny the very indicative statements that you say are true about you. You can't. Paul says that doesn't compute. That doesn't apply. You can't say that. It is indicative of people who are truly dead to sin, who are truly alive to Christ, that imperatively they say no to sin most of the time. And when we do sin, we are grieved about it. You want to confess it. You want to go and make it right. You know that you've experienced the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and you want to say to yourself and you want to say to God, I confess to you that I've sinned against you and I've sinned against those whom I love and I want to make it right with them. This sin, it seems so heinous to me. And you say to yourself, yes, and as I grow in Christ, it seems as though I'm battling with the question, am I really Christ's? Well, guess what? The closer you get to Christ, the more you see your sin. And the more, you, the more you see your sin, the more heinous you believe it is. And the more heinous you believe it is, there are questions that might come to your mind. Do I really know Christ? Well, rejoice, my friends, rejoice that the sin in your life, smallish though it may be in time, is heinous to God, and that's His mechanism for you to deal with it even more closely. God says, I'm working on you, and I'm eliminating progressively the sin of your heart 
but even the sin that remains, that's that which you should deal with. And your response is, oh yes, Lord, I know that. I see that. It is ever before me. Please don't present your members as instruments to sin for unrighteousness, but as instruments to God for the sake of righteousness. That's an imperative command. Please don't be indicatively characterized as either a libertine or an antinomian, he says. If those labels do characterize you, you're in serious trouble spiritually. Serious trouble. And could I say this? There are multitudes, multitudes of professing Christians in our world. We might say Christendom, who say they love Christ but have no concept of what Paul is preaching this morning. No concept. They've signed a card. They've walked an aisle. They've prayed a prayer. They've done something where someone may have even come alongside them and said, well, I see that. Card signed. I see that prayer prayed. I was the one who prayed with you. Don't ever doubt your salvation. You've got full assurance because once you say, I believe in Christ, that's it. That settles it. That's forever. And it might be even that someone slips right in underneath that and says, now look, maybe, you know, that sin problem, that sin issue, yeah, it's bad every now and then, but look, don't worry about that. Just count on the grace of Christ. Just just count on His grace. His grace is so magnanimous. His grace is so wonderful that when you sin, He'll just dispense more of His grace so that you'll see all grace. And even when that sin is there, don't worry about it because there's grace to follow. Do you see it? The warpness of that? Do you see how easily that could be turned into licentious living? Do you see how easy a libertine could sneak in to the body of Christ? Do you see how easy it is For him to slip in to even cast aspersions on the genuineness of the Christian. Because he is dealing with his sin. And he has to be told over and over and over again based on Romans 6.1. Don't buy that. Don't buy the lie. Don't sin wantonly. Don't sin fragrantly. Because you believe God's grace is there to be dispensed readily. And someone says, but isn't that true? Isn't that true? Isn't God's grace there to be dispensed because of my sin? Yes. But not so I can wallow in it. Not so that I can enjoy it. Not so that I can take it on to my bosom and say, this is mine. I will have it. No one can take me from it. This is what I want. Because you know, a person who's characterized like that, they really aren't characterized as looking and wanting and willing and submitting to Christ Jesus as Lord. They're their Lord. They are their Lord. They are the ones who are saying, this is what I want. This is what I must have. God must give it to me. I want my desires. And notice what he says right there in verse 12 of Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Sounds like that person is characterized by passions. And Satan can spy in on our liberty in Christ and he can make liberty look like licentiousness. And Satan has done a very good job outside the body of Christ to make people think that sin isn't serious at all. 
And he casts aspersions on the church, the body of Christ, by saying, look, they're far too concerned about sin. Look, they're morbidly introspective about it. We've got to move away from these uncaring, unloving, uncharitable people who are always talking about dealing with their sin and mine. Let's move away from those people. In fact, let's leave that particular church and let's go to another that doesn't emphasize so much the issue of sin. In fact, let's go to those churches where they emphasize grace all the more, abounding all the more. It's a trap. It's a trap. Don't fall for it. I presume you're here because you do not want to fall in that trap. Because it sounds good, it sounds plausible, it sounds right, and to a degree it is. But in another sense it isn't. If they're not balancing the idea of the grace of God and what it has been brought to us to do. And that's what Paul told Titus. God's grace has been brought to us to teach us, to urge us, to command us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and the passions thereof. Those are the things that the grace of God teaches us to deny, not live in. You see the balance? That's what Paul's saying here. You tell me that we who died to sin, indicative statement of fact, can still live in it? I say to you, no way. That cannot characterize a Christian's life. What about you? How are you presenting the members of your body to God? Instrument of righteousness or instrument of unrighteousness? And how do you personally answer this question? Am I going to continue in sin that grace may abound? Just just turn that question that Paul gives here in verse 1 onto yourself. Am I going to continue in sin that grace may abound? The libertine says, well, yes. Yes, I will. Because God's a God of grace. That's what He wants to triumph over. That's That's what He wants to give us. Paul says, no, you can't do that. And if you claim a deep, intimate relationship with Christ, you will answer like Paul, by no means. How can I, who died to sin, continue to live in it? I can't continue to live in my sin. I don't want to be an antinomian. I don't want to say that God's commands are not applicable to me. They are. And when I live them out in the power of the Spirit and by that same grace of God, He will continue to show me how much more I don't obey and how much more I desperately want to. That's a true Christian. That's a real Christian. That's a growing Christian. What about you? Is that you? Is that your Christian life? Does that characterize you? Is it indicative about you that you would say no to The question, am I to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is very powerful, beloved, very powerful. Paul gives us the answer directly from the inspired Spirit of God Himself. If you're living in sin this morning, if you're characterized by that, you can lay no claim on Christ. 
You can't say Christ is mine. You can't live under the illusion that you have a deep and intimate and vital relationship with Christ if you're living in a sinful pattern of behavior. And you know, there are many, many people who I have the opportunity to speak with. And when I talk to them at times and they say to me, I've been addicted, I've been lusting after, I've been characterized as having sinful lusts, I've been looking at internet pornography, or I've been thinking lustful thoughts, or I've been for many years characterized by anger and bitterness in my heart. I've been saying and doing those things in an unbroken pattern of life. What's my response as the preacher? What do I need to tell them? What's your response as a Christian toward those who come to you for that kind of help? You must tell them and you must be bold and you must speak the truth in love and say, if you are continuing to live in sin, how can you say you've truly died to it? How can you truly say Christ is the Lord of your life? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in Christ and believe that He is your new Lord who will deliver you from the power of sin's control. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, this is so powerful to us. It speaks right to the core, right to the indicative elements of our life. Do we know Christ? It is, in, is it indicative about us that Christ is our Lord, that we're answering the question, do we who have died to sin continue to live in it? Oh, I trust, Lord, that You'll open up the hearts of every person here to answer that very question. Lord, speak to their hearts. Speak to their lives. Challenge them afresh and anew to not pillow their head tonight without answering that question. Don't let them go another hour, Lord. And Lord, if they can answer that question, yes, I know Christ. Yes, He's mine. Yes, my life is characterized as being lived under His Lordship. Then Lord, give me the grace and the strength to say no to the remaining sin in my life. It does not reign, but it remains. Lord, deal with remaining sin. Let me continue to say yes to Christ and no to my sin. Lord, thank You for challenging us this very day. And may the truths of this great chapter penetrate our hearts and bring us the reality, the true nature of our spiritual condition. And bring us to repentance and faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.